And here we are, ah. finally back after the Oscars. Uh, apologies for the uh, lengthier than normal layoff. Uh, I got sick and lost my voice. And it was a truncated season. And it was it was just a, it was an insane award season. And uh, and then we had a holiday last week. So uh, I have my voice back. I might cough for a moment on the show. I know the last show we did, I was I was hacking up a storm. Uh, so I might cough for a moment, not totally out of it, but I can talk again. Yes. So, uh, Tim, Oscars uh, post-mortem. Well. Parasite, um, huh? You, you, you let me throw myself on my sword right away. I walked around this town. I was on many television and radio programs explaining exactly why Parasite would not win Best Picture. <laughs> I was very... I, was, I, I do. Justin <laughs> Chang wrote an entire column Fantastic. in the LA Times yeah. the day before the Oscars saying the same thing. You know, and uh, and I you know I laid it out so well in so many places. So, I, so I'll just, let me just go ahead and cop to it right now. And, and, and generally speaking, our uh, sort of notion about this uh, was that because that film was nominated in the best of what they call international, yeah. whatever the hell I call it now that that would undermine it yeah in the best picture category yeah because when you give it to that you don't have to give it to in the other one mm -hmm. you, get, you get a whole different set of people up on stage everybody's happy and you know and I was you know I was kind of point pointed at uh once upon a time mm-hmm and I was too and pretty pretty clear about it and uh and was just did freaking bang wrong I what I think is interesting is and it, it again the main reason that you and I and a lot of others said it wouldn't happen is because of the assumption that when someone votes for something in foreign language or international or animation or documentary if that movie is also nominated for best picture by virtue of giving it your vote in its exclusive category you deprioritize it in best picture yeah because and you're normal <laughs> and clearly, that did not happen. Um, really interesting piece. I think it was in the Hollywood Reporter about the uh, the the top person, the the head of IDPR, who was the one who came on board after the Cannes Film Festival and orchestrated the entire year long awards campaign that got Parasite basically on the map. Bong Joon Ho relocated his family to Los Angeles permanently mm. during that uh, the awards season so that he was here. He was on call. He was on red carpets. He was doing interviews. He was on television. He was on radio. He was the face of the movie. Yeah. Uh, he and that amazing And he is hair. extremely affable. Oh, he's more than affable. He's just, he's he's funny. He's charming. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's what you want. You want that guy being the face of it because when you give, uh, when you fall in love with a filmmaker, you want to award the film. Yeah. Very simple, uh, uh, you know, and um, it, it, you, you look needed to have made a good movie, which he yeah. did. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, some people appreciate it more than more than others. I thought it was perfectly, uh, yeah, perfectly reasonable. But, we, I mean, Los Angeles Film Critics yeah. Association, we sure. did it. It's the first. It's the first film that we've given be our best picture to that has won the Academy Award for Best Picture in. Oh, gosh, it's been a long time. Possibly since Schindler's List. Mm. I, I'd have to look at the list. I think we there might be another one in there somewhere, but. Um, but also significantly, and I wrote a big old lengthy piece on cinegods.com. Everybody can go there and look mm -hmm. at my pre and post Oscar pieces. Um, but the, uh, this is only the second time in history that the winner of the Cannes Film Festival, Palme d'Or, mm. has gone on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Which is fascinating. In point of fact, the only other time that happened was the first year of the Palme d'Or in 1955 when Marty won it. Wow. So Ernest Borgnine. Ernest Borgnine. 
So, uh, now the Cannes Film Festival didn't start in 55. It had been going, you know, since the 1940s. But the Palme d'Or as a, as a, as the top prize, that was created in 1955. Mm. So in the history of the Palme d'Or, that has now only happened twice, the first time and, and now. So there are, you know, I think this new Academy class that came in uh, because Cheryl Boone Isaacs really decided to just aggressively open up the Academy membership yeah. and invite, uh, largely that, that new class was predominantly international. International, yeah. It was a very international class. And I think clearly the presence of more international voting members now makes a difference. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you look, considering last year's, uh, you know, Green Book. Yeah. And uh, from Green Book to Parasite. Uh, and Parasite winning both of the awards, too, uh, for that matter. I mean, I can't imagine a further, a, a, a wider sort of trek. In terms I, of a sort of perspective and idea about about movies, and, and I'm going to say this too: it comes down to the preferential ballot. Mm. I think they would do well because let's remember again: as much of a game changer as people say this is, it really isn't. Uh, it's still the lowest rated Academy Awards in history. Yeah, it's the lowest. Yeah, it made a little uptick last year, and then it collapsed again this year, which I'm surprised by because I thought that the presence of Ford versus Ferrari, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Irish 1917. You know, some really high-profile studio yeah, Scorsese's films. Scorsese's in the room again. Scorsese. Yeah, I Pacino thought that, and all the old guys. But but then again, you know, uh, the really big commercial stuff didn't get nominated. Uh, Avengers, Endgame, we thought might have a shot at a Best Picture nomination. Didn't us, happen. Us. It came out early in us. the year. Made, made $170 million. $170 million. No, no nominations. Didn't get any nominations. Yeah. You know, the, the big summary, even the really acclaimed stuff, didn't slip in there. Yeah. And I think uh, unless some really big, unless you're making, and, it, and it's a double-edged sword, right? Are you going to nominate some really crappy movie because it was a big box office hit? Oh, I don't think so. No. What you need to do is make really good movies and drive them to be box office hits. Which is why I had in, you know, you had, you had ten, 10 slots, nine, nine occupied, yeah. one left open. For, and you can explain all the reasons yeah. why that's that's even possible, but but that notwithstanding, yeah. you have a slot left open that you can put Endgame or Us or any one of those movies in mm -hmm. perfectly legitimately, right? You're not making an exception yeah. by putting those in that slot, and now you have a whole bunch of people that have a reason to watch that show. Yeah, who did not watch that show? If Endgame is and Endgame, Endgame is a great movie, dude. I love it. Had, I think, had, I think you know, it should have been in there. Uh, it's, re, it's as reasonable a nomination as Black Panther was. Uh, you know, absolutely. Um, uh, and now you have a whole bunch of people watching that show who didn't watch that show. I I think I think they need to go back to five nominees. I really do. I think uh, the I think it's it's been bad for ratings to go with the with the field of nine or ten. Um, or 10, or up to 10, however they want to do it. I think that's been bad for ratings. I think it's been bad for the awards, generally. I think it just, it creates too much, um, it creates too much havoc. I think Parasite would still have won this year, mm. but but uh, I don't think Green Book would have won last year. Um, what uh, four this year uh, yeah. films would not have been nominated if it were a five? Or uh, Irishman's out for me. Uh, you know what? I think I, I think it would have been I think Ford versus Ferrari. Much as I love it, would when we were going to talk about it, that it today would be too. Out. That would not that be out. That's I think two. Little Women would be out. Really? Yeah. Mm. I think the five would have been uh, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 1917, Irishman, and oh, what would that fifth spot have probably been? Um, I'd have to look at the list again. No, see, but, I swap. I swap. Uh, I swap Irishman for Little Women. 
Yeah. Uh, that's that. That's what I do. Um, uh, Irish. If it weren't for Marty, Irishman wouldn't have ever been in, in play. Yeah, you know. Uh, but it, it, they 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 need to go back to five. And you know what they what else they need to do? And I know the Academy doesn't want to do this. Because Jojo Rabbit. A, no, it's out. Yeah, that's out. Yeah. yeah. Jojo so Rabbit's I got two out. slots open actually. So now so, now I still put us in. I still got even with five. Yeah. I still got us. Or Avengers, or Avengers, yeah. in, in 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 that slot. So yeah, I, they they need to go back to five. And here's the other thing they need to do. And I know the Academy won't want to do this. Uh, and what do they care what I think? Um, but I mean, they really need to clean house. They need new management at the Academy, and they need to terminate. I know it's going to be painful after all these decades. Terminate the contract with ABC. Mm. Move to another network. Mm. ABC is toxic. ABC is Disney owned. ABC is obsessed with with uh, the Oscars bringing in an eighteen to twenty five year old audience. Mm. That's their that's their advertiser base. Screw them. Yeah. Seriously, screw them. Move to NBC. Move to Fox. Move to CBS. For crying out loud, CBS does well with awards shows. Um, move to CBS. I know all the awards shows are collapsing. I know the Grammys and the Tonys, and they're all you know really really uh, we're a little fed up with awards shows. But, uh, you know, do something to sort of invigorate, reinvigorate the advertiser base and just just change the game up a little bit. Um, there are just so many ways that we can we can try to approach this anew. I don't look. Uh, maybe it's a streaming thing. I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I, movies, um, you know, theatrical, you know, first run uh, movies. We need better ones. Uh, you you, you got to because, yeah. look, you get, you're gonna, you have to give people a reason uh, to get out of their house, to get in their car, to yep. drive to the place, to spend the money and all of the associated costs that, come, that comes with going with the movie. A thing that we did for years, you and I, we did it yep. all our lives. But, we, but when we were children, and for that, or for that matter, relatively speaking, young men, we did not have 64-inch televisions, 4K, streaming just about every film we've ever seen in our lives, mm -hmm. and frankly, uh, tele uh, or serialized programming. Yep. that's as good as most cinema anyway. Yeah, totally. You know, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, you think about all those years, all through the 90s, when, you know, what, three, maybe four nights a week, we would yeah. make that trek into Westwood yeah. uh, to, to see these movies. And, and now we get Vimeo links, yeah. and I sit there, and I'm getting, you know, I mean, I put on my, uh, so I don't wake up the family, I put on my uh, my awesome headphones, and mm -hmm. I, it's a cinematic experience. Yeah, you know, so, so you got to give people a reason to go out to the movies. I don't think, for a while there, I think the idea was we'll just make bigger and more... Uh, yeah. uh, CGI effects, action films, whatever, whatever the genre, but we'll just do that, and, and people will want to come. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, whatever it is, uh, because of that. At the Avatar movies, I think, are counting on that. Yeah. They're going to be wrong. They're going to be very wrong. They, they, they took too long. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I have no particular. Um, I, I am not particularly motivated to go see the Big Blue. In, 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 no. in, in, I don't. In, 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 uh, and, and what and, and whatever it looks like, it's going to look terrible. I. I, I yeah. probably just going to look I, terrible I because, don't. because we've already we've already acclimated to that previous look. Yeah, and if you look at that movie now on a 4K television, it looks ludicrous. <laughs> it's just perfectly ludicrous. And so you know, anyway, I'm yeah. done. Well, anyway, it's uh, there are a lot of things to unpack with this year's Oscars, and there are going to be things to unpack with this new Academy voting class for the next few years. Uh, but here's the last thing I will say about Parasite. Um, what when everybody was picking 1917, they were saying, but it won the Producers Guild and the Directors Guild. Yes, but what we weren't all focusing enough on was the fact that 
Parasite won the SAG Cast Award mm. and it upset 1917 with the Writers Guild. Mm. It won SAG and WGA. SAG and WGA represent more members of the Academy than the PGA and the DGA. Okay. So if it's directors and producers versus actors and writers, we'll, actors and writers we'll are going to win every time. They're going to win every time. Yeah, every time. <laughs> Even if all the same people vote yep. in the exact same way, it's just numbers. Just numbers. You can't win. We also lost Kirk Douglas this uh, week, one of the last movie stars, like really last movie stars. 102, was he? 102, 102. 102. Interviewed Kurt at his 99th birthday party. Wow. And what was funny about that, I was interviewing, I'm interviewing Kurt. He was 99, not long after he had, had that stroke, but he, he, you know, he, could still, he could still get some stuff out, walking down the red carpet with the wife. Yeah. Uh, 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 Clive, uh, uh, what's his name? Clive Davies. Uh, yeah. You know, he was there. Yeah. Uh, 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 and Kurt and Michael was there. Uh, and uh, and I'm looking at Michael, and I'm looking at Kurt, and I'm looking at Michael, and I'm looking at Kurt, and I'm thinking, you know, Kurt, you know, 50 years older, and had a stroke, <laughs> looks, looks younger. I'm like, it was just the most bizarre thing. I'm looking at Michael and Kurt, and I'm like, how the hell does Kurt oh. look younger than Michael? But it was true, and that was, you know, anyway, hung in there well, a long time. We only we only have uh, Olivia de Havilland now. Yeah. She is literally the last. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, who's 97, who just turned 97, you'd yeah. be surprised and who has the largest following on social media of any star over 90. <laughs> Which is weird. But Larry Storch. Get the F troop. Yes. Larry. Larry. Larry's 97. Larry is 97. I guess he is. I guess and he is. he is. He's got 40,000 Facebook followers. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love he it. He has the largest following on social media You're of any star over 40,001 now because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow. And he's active. He's active. He's, he's out there. Why still- the hell would you... Ret- He's Larry Storch, man. F true, but Larry Storch is the greatest thing. Corporal Agarn, my favorite. I love it. So anyway, Kirk Douglas, and and we're going to start off with a Kirk Douglas movie that you probably never heard of before. From 1971, close to the kind of the later mid-range of his career. He kept working into the 80s, of course. But, you know, he's he's starting to wind it down in in the 1970s. And uh, from 1971, he made a movie with Yul Brynner, and the beautiful Samantha Egger called The Light at the Edge of the World. Uh, This is a Jules Verne story, and it's, you know, it's not great, but because Kirk Douglas is in it, I just, I can't, I can't resist it. It's, it's all nostalgic now. Um, It's, and and with Kirk in it, it just suddenly becomes a different movie, and Mule Brenner's doing his thing, and Kirk is doing his thing, and it's, uh, it all takes place in South America, uh, and uh, it centers on the the most dangerous um, shipping area and and the lighthouse that has to sort of oversee this, and it becomes kind of a uh, a, a battle of wills, if you will, between uh, these two you know men. I mean, Yul Brenner's always going toe to toe with somebody. He's always going whether it's Chuck Heston or whoever it is. And in this case, it's Kirk Douglas, and uh, the you know they they they're they're kind of battling for the the control of this shipping lane, and uh, you know Kirk Douglas is a, is the lighthouse keeper, and uh, and Yul Brenner is a pirate, and Samantha Egger, of course, is this you know this beautiful woman that they both love, and there you go, it's yeah. all set up. Um, I don't know how close this is to the mm-hmm. to the uh, the uh, uh, Jules Verne. All I know is it's just got some really great stars in it. It looks really cool. It's a little too long, but that's okay. Um, 1971, Kirk Douglas, Jill Brenner in Jules Verne's The Light at the Edge of the World. 
uh, with a terrific audio commentary, by the way, from uh, film historians Howard Berger and Nathaniel Thompson. And uh, uh, some interviews, which include Elias Salkind, who would go on to do the Superman movies. Yeah. And this is the first of the lineup of kinos that we're going to be talking about today. Um, tons of kinos to start off the show. That was the one we wanted to go with uh, right off the top. Tim's got a bunch of Spike Lee titles that Kino has put out, which is really amazing because all of them are great. And um, I'm going to move on quickly before I turn it over to Tim to a couple of Sergio Corbucci films. Uh. Uh, which are little known. One is the Hellbenders, and the other is the Specialist. Sergio Corbucci, of course, is the uh, progenitor the, of the Django. Django, that's right. The, Django the movies. sort of the second tier, um, but a, still a list of the spaghetti western directors. Yeah. Um, the Hellbenders is really pretty great. I I had seen this a long time ago. hadn't seen it again until recently. Uh, Joe Cotton stars in this one. An older Joe Cotton. This is from 1967. This is not you know. Uh, Orson Welles era, Joe, Joe Cotton. But um, this is a pretty great movie. It's got a really fun commentary by Alex Cox, who now does nothing but commentaries for movies that he loves. He's not, not making his own movies anymore for some weird reason. But it's really cool. Alex Cox is is quite a film historian himself. And uh, some of you may have seen this under its alternate title called The Cruel Ones, but, mm-hmm. but The Hellbenders is what most people know it under. And uh, it's pretty great. It's one of those post-Civil War uh, the the anarchy of the post Civil War Western period um, is what a lot of these movies deal with, and uh, that's basically what's going on here. Um, Joe Cotton plays this um, ex Confederate madman, and uh, it, they 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 still want to like keep the Civil War going and lead an invasion of the North and get it all going again. And it's it's it it's pretty preposterous, but it's really well done. Uh, Corbucci just has a lot of fun with it. Uh, the Specialists is a little bit uh, different. This has Johnny Halliday, the recently deceased um, oh, yeah. French uh, legendary singing uh, star. Um, John, Johnny Halliday, you know, in addition to being a great recording artist and amazing singer, starred in a lot of great movies. Man on the Train, a more recent one, mm-hmm. which was Oscar nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, another Alex Cox commentary here, which is really terrific. And uh, Johnny Halliday, not quite as magnetic as Joe Cotton, but um, he's really good here. He plays a, uh, a gunfighter who, uh, who's trying to sort of uh, set things right after his brother was lynched in this one little particular town. And uh, it's, a, it, it's a more contained story. It's a less political story, but it's still really well done. And Johnny Halliday in 1969 was all kinds of beautiful. The guy's name was Hood. Yeah. Hood Dixon. <laughs> Johnny Halliday is Hood Dixon. Fantastic. Hey, yeah, I'm thinking about you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Leo and Once Upon a Time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the start of the reverse of it that, is. of course. It's Very much. still funny. Very much. Very much. Uh, so let's let's talk about Spike. Oh, let's do some Spike movies. And uh, so so uh, this this is interesting. The, the 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 several that you gave me are mostly the ones that be- begin Spike's um, run through the nineties. Yeah. So of course Spike, she's got to have it. Nineteen eighty six. Yeah. Of course, and right after that, School Days, and do the right thing in the eighties. Nineteen eighty nine. Excuse me. Uh, you know, funny funny references to that in the little movie that I yep. made. Uh, Miss Daisy, uh, regarding that movie and driving Miss Daisy. But these movies that I have here uh, are the movies with which he begins tonight, beginning with Mo Better Blues, 1990. Such a good movie. A wonderful movie. Um, Spike was still engaged in this particular sort of um, thing uh, that he was doing after he started making Hollywood movies with Mo Better Blues, though. And it continues for a little while. And I used to, and you, you know, I wrote, I love all these movies. Yeah. I love all these movies. But Spike had this habit. 
of making every movie movie in his head <laughs> in one movie. True. In the early nineties, he did yeah. it in Jungle Fever again yeah. too. It's like so. You, so if you watch those movies, you get this sense of it's as if I'm watching two or three movies yeah. at once, and they have these sort of connective parts there, yeah. but they're not. They don't really go together. He's, st- he's stuffing too much into it, one into, film. into one film. Yeah. And and had this movie been pared down just a wee bit and been about just one thing, just one thing, yep. then it would be a completely brilliant movie. Nevertheless, I love this movie. His dad was still doing his scores um, uh, at this time, although Terrence, uh, the wonderful Terrence Blanchard, starts to uh, he starts to work the wonderful Terrence Blanchard at this time. Denzel Washington, of course, his sister in the movie, uh, 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 Cinder Williams in the movie, who had also been in She's Gotta Have It. So uh, Spike Lee getting going in 1990. Then Jungle Fever, Annabella Shiora, of course, in the news as relating to the Harvey Weinstein trial, which... Uh, I don't know. As we as we record today, that's the jury. I think is still out on what's going on there. She was pivotal, yeah, uh, in, in some testimony there. But Anna Belashiora, just extraordinary in this film with Wesley Snipes and Anthony Quinn and and Spike. And you forget you forget you know what a, what a neat movie this was. But again, it was one of those situations where Spike was telling a whole bunch of stories. That story about his crackhead brother, yeah, Sam Jackson, yeah. Sam Jackson won Sporting Actor at Cannes for that. For that, yeah. Forget, you yeah. know, and uh, yeah. and Halle Berry launched Halle Berry's career. Yep. Uh, career. She played the crackhead. That's right. Uh, the crack hoe. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the movie launched her career. Ironic yeah. that she started there. Monty Ross, the wonderful producer, Monty Ross, still uh, producing Sir Spike, and of course that fantastic score. And then we bump off to Crooklyn. I will uh, full disclosure when you get the the box for Cl- Crooklyn or yeah. in many of the many boxes Crooklyn was in and. It, the ones that have taglines on them, yeah, uh, I wrote all those taglines. <laughs> uh, I, I was working for a guy uh, named uh, Sims, Art Sims, Art Sims, good friend of Spike, was his yeah. designer of all of these packages for years and years and years. And Art's wife, no, Art's secretary was my wife's agent. And 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 yeah, and I knew my wife's agent, and and she knew I was a writer, and she introduced me to Art, and uh, Art loved my writing, and he hired me to write uh, taglines for years. I wrote so I wrote all the taglines for Crooklyn, and for uh, oh a whole bunch of Rusty Cundiff films and all that kind of stuff. So my taglines on this movie, wonderful movie, more or less um, um, kind of autobiographical story for Spike here, telling the story of his his father and his mother and his brothers and sisters growing up in Brooklyn in that brownstone. It's just a beautiful film. Um, a little early, I think, in his career to be doing a reflective film on on, on, on having grown up in Brooklyn, because you know this is I, uh, I, I, a little early. This is uh, this is 1994. Uh, and, you know, I I think there is so much sweetness in Crooklyn. It's really one of my favorite films of his. The only thing I don't like is when he has those seg- those sequences when he does the anamorphic squeeze, yeah, which yeah. is really weird. And, and then, and, yeah, and that it's thing a, that he was doing with the float. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, some of, the, some of the stylistic choices were, like, really kind of threw me for a loop. But Crooklyn has so much sweetness in it. There's so much pathos that doesn't always show up in Spike's movies. It's, yeah. It's his softer side that he doesn't really let us see too often because, you know, he likes to be Spike. But but uh, there's a real sweetness to Crooklyn that's uh, that's autobiographical and really beautiful. You can tell that everybody in that film uh, loves each other. But he's still doing that thing in that film that he stops doing in this film. So this is Clockers. Yeah. Right. So th- th- a yeah. Gun for Hire. Yeah. Uh, adaptation. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is and so so he's contained a little bit and I, and I loved when he this is 1995 uh, if I'm not mistaken yeah 95 uh, Harvey Keitel. Adaptation of the Richard Price novel, uh, a screenplay by Richard. So Spike's not writing here. 
Spike is directing and designing, really for the first time in his career. Uh, and to me, this is when Spike completely and totally matured as a director. Because he couldn't lean on any of those little things that he did in all mm -hmm. of those personal films. That little push-pull thing that he, that he would do in many, many movies. Yep. Uh, all of that had to go out the window. Uh, uh, he couldn't play anybody in this movie. Um, this was simply a movie. So he had to be Stanley Kubrick now. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and he nailed it. This is really an Mackay Pfeiffer, Isaiah Washington, it's, Keith David, uh, really, really nailed. Clockers it. was was the movie when people said, "Oh wow, he can do that Scorsese yeah. thing. He can literally kind of let his spikeness go, go and he can yeah. just just he can make the movie, make the movie, yeah, make yep. the Richard Price uh, Richard Price movie." Yep. And then summer, summer of Sam, summer of Sam. Look. Um, uh, again, he's going back to his childhood, remembering that summer in his youth when the when the uh, yeah, yeah, that killer was roaming around Brooklyn, uh, committing those horrible murders, and and, and reflecting on all of that. So he's kind of back in his life again yep. uh, in this movie. Some really really good performances in this movie. Unfortunately, there is that one moment in this movie which is fatal to it, when the dog starts yep, talking. Yep. And I, I get agree. it. Homeboy said the dog told him to do it. And the dog talks. And the dog talks. And I'm like, you everyone, know. Everyone, I was sitting in the AVCO at the press screening. I was with you. I know. And and that, and that happened. And I think we looked at each other and we thought, <laughs> oh, no. Really? No. We're going to. You, you, you're 1999. And I'm like, I, you had to come up with something else. You, once the dog starts talking, uh, you, you know, you got to put that inside his head somehow. Anyway, yeah. other than that, um, uh, a neat movie. And that's how he ends, more or less ends. This is 1999. That's how he ends the 90s. So these films right here. Are Spike Lee in the nineties? All five from yeah. Kino. All, all packed with all kinds of great stuff, by the way. Uh, well, look, most of them with great stuff. Uh, you got an audio commentary on Summer of Sam, uh, and and some other special features. Uh, not, no audio commentary, unfortunately, on Crooklyn. That would have been beautiful. You do have an audio commentary on Clockers, and you've got an audio commentary on Mo Better Blues. So. Eh, about half of them. We've also got a couple of audio commentaries on two Preston Sturges classics, uh, one which he wrote, the other one which he wrote and directed after he got his uh, his writing directing career up and running. Uh, Preston Sturges wrote uh, The Good Fairy for director William Wyler in 1935, and that was, you know, they're, they're both really on the up curve at that time, and it's a really sweet film, very underrated. It's kind of a, a sentimental romantic comedy in the... Uh, Mary Pickford Vane post uh, right you know we're, we're, we're right at the beginning of the code so it's very clean but it's also still very much connected to the depression era and uh, and it's not yet World War II so we're in a moment we're in a moment right there in the mid 30s and the good fairy is very much uh, notched into it the idea of this this young girl who wants to become kind of a um, a, a good fairy in life and all of this, the trouble that that sort of uh, introduces. And um, it all takes place in Hungary. And uh, because the, the story on, that it's based on is a Hungarian story by a, by a writer named Frank Molnar. Preston Sturges wrote the screenplay. Uh, this was made at the time for uh, the Carl Lemley and Universal. And William Wyler directed it, and it's a beautiful, sweet film. It's just a really, really wonderful film. The Good Fairy with Margaret Sullivan and Herbert Marshall. Commentary from uh, Simon Abrams, who is a film critic and author. And then you get really pure Preston Sturges in the amazing Great McGinty, which is so much more timely today yeah. than it was at the time. Great McGinty is is sort of the um, 
it's a more cynical flip side to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah. It's about a basically a, a hobo who winds up voting like three dozen times in an election, and that makes him a desirable political figure. And he he ingratiates himself into the uh, political uh, machine run by uh, quote unquote the boss, uh, played by uh, Akim Tamaroff. And it's just um, it, it, it it where it goes from there is just the height of absurdism, and it is just hysterically wonderful and funny, and it won an Academy Award for best original screenplay. Mm. So uh, it's just really, really, really great. Uh, just a terrific movie. Commentary by uh, film historian Sam Dayan, and uh, that's from 1940, and it is really, really fun. Uh, I highly recommend it. The Great McGinty. Uh, would I would have hoped to see you know more extras on it, but still, uh, Kino gave us a, a great gift with that one. So the great McGinty from Kino. Uh, also, a whole bunch of really cool French films. They they've loaded up over at Kino on on the classic French titles. And uh, we've got I'll go through them. Uh, Quai des Orfèvres by Henri Georges Clouseau is is one of the all time great Clouseau films. It's one of the all time great uh, French uh, film noirs. And uh, you just, you can't not have this. It's from 1947, and uh, it is right up there with The Wages of Fear and yeah. Diabolique. It's it's really, really just, it's it's absolutely perfect. Elevated to the gallows. Yeah, it, it's it's really, I mean, all those great French noirs, this is the one that, uh, this may even be, I'd say, like top five French noirs. Mm. Um, but it's great. You got the, you know, you got the inspectors, and you got the murder, and you got all the, all the, 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 uh, the femme fatale. You got all the, all the noir elements here. Um, but done in in you know the the paranoia of 1940s France, World War II, uh, German occupation is is on the horizon. Uh, you know it's it's pretty great. It's pretty great. So uh, Quai des Orfèvres uh, with Henri Georges Clouseau uh, directing Louis Jouvet, Simone Renan, and uh, Bernard Blier, the father of Bertrand Blier. By the way, mm. here's a bit of weirdness that I just discovered. Uh, and you pro- have you seen uh, the Jesus Rolls yet? You're no. supposed to review that on radio, aren't I? Thought. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Because yeah, I haven't it's, screened it's, it. The 28th. Yeah. No. It's really weird. That's a spinoff from from uh, the Big Lebowski. Oh, really? With, with John Turturro playing Jesus, the bowler. Oh. It's that that's the character. Cohen Brothers directing. Cohen Brothers co-wrote. John Turturro, I think, directed. Okay. And Bertrand Blier co-wrote. Really? How does a, That's a bizarre how does, a, how does Bertrand Blier get pulled into the Cohen brothers? It's weird to me. Yeah. He doesn't around. even speak English. It's a roundabout sort of little thing. Yes, ha- it is. Had to be a, had, look, had to be a fan of Lebowski. Uh, it's just a there. strange thing. Anyway, his father's in this movie. Uh, Claude Sauté, the wonderful Claude Sauté, made Max and the Junkmen with Michel Piccoli and Romy Schneider. Gorgeous freaking Romy Schneider. Yeah. Like, shockingly just fantastic in this film. More gorgeous than she's probably been in any other film. I don't know. I mean, I'm not usually a Romy Schneider fan, but my goodness, she's amazing here. And Michelle Piccoli, of course, is just always super cool. Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, Claude Sauté makes just really, really great dramas. His more recent films are a little bit more famous. Nelly and Monsieur Arnaud, which is my all-time favorite, and Encore en hiver, which Encore en hiver. Hard in Winter, which is which is absolutely lovely. This one uh, is more kind of a pseudo noir. It's not really a great drama. It's it's kind of a drama noir. It's it's middling between the two. Um, Piccoli plays a detective, and uh, he, he's you know 
trying to put the he's trying to put the the, the case together, and Romy Schneider is kind of like a a femme fatale, but it's it's all done in a much more um, much more melodramatic style. It's uh, but it's really good. Max and the Junkman. It's worth checking out. Claude Sauté, one of the one of the great French directors of all time. Uh, and then we've got uh, two by Rene Clément and Hope to Die and uh, The Deadly Trap. The Deadly Trap is uh, probably a little bit more well-known because it has, uh, it has an American cast. Um, it's got Frank Langella and Faye Dunaway in role, very young, by the way, like ridiculously young in 1971. And um, they're both really terrific. The, the, the combination of those two actors with, a, with um, René Clément, an all-time legendary French director is really really very interesting um, takes place in Paris and it's uh, it's about this couple whose children might wind up have been kidnapped um, it's it, it's really you know while the, this American couple in Paris missing their children and then all of the drama that transpires and how they deal with it now they don't deal with it it's pretty great really really interesting film uh, and hope to die is a little bit more uh, in the traditional Rene Clément Bain. That was made the following year in 1972, and um, it's kind of a it's. <coughs> there's my cough for the yeah. show. <coughs> Excuse me. I knew it was going to catch up with me. This is a little bit more of a, a uh, of a heist film. It's about uh, you know these these French criminals who uh, uh, wind up on the lam, and uh, I won't give you all the all the twists in it, but it's it's a, it's about a. a a plot gone wrong and how they how they deal with it and you know it's got some great music by Francis Lai, uh, really good performances especially by Jean Louis Trintignant and Robert Ryan, uh, Aldo Ray is in it as well and um, interestingly this was this was I, I realized later on that the um, the production manager on this was Uli Picard mm-hmm. who I met who had been the production manager on Nostromo before David Lean died. And oh. Uli Picard gave me a tour of the production offices of Nostromo, and I saw the boards for That's that. That's that guy? That's the guy, Uli Picard, <laughs> amazing production manager in Paris. Uh, anyway, this has a great audio commentary that includes uh, Howard Berger, Steve Mitchell, and Nathaniel Thompson. And then uh, author Brian Reisman does the commentary on The Deadly Trap. And then rounding out all the uh, the French films here, we've got uh, two by Claude Chabrol, Line of Demarcation and The Third Lover. Neither of the uh, Claude Chabrol has made just a, more <laughs> films than anybody has any business mm. even counting. I've done commentaries for them with Andy Klein and FX Feeney, our, our colleague who recently passed. Sadly, I think we did like eight or nine Claude Chabrol commentaries, and I, you know, I keep discovering more and more of them. It's amazing. Um, these are from 1962 and 1966. The Third Lover from 1962 stars Jacques Charrier and Stéphane Audran, who, of course, was his wife at the time, and uh, Stéphane Audran stars with as well with uh, Maurice Ronet, uh, Jean Seberg, and Jacques Perrin in Line of Demarcation. Um, look. Here's the deal. Uh, both of these are classic Claude Chabrol films. Um, the uh, the third lover is probably the most typical of what he does. This is uh, very Hitchcockian and um, very subversive in the way that it, it approaches issues of class and deception and uh, fidelity. It's it, it it's a 
it's a it's a it's an uh, how would I how would I phrase this? This is an intrusive stranger movie. When somebody mm. like mm. kind of like Joseph Losey, and we're going to talk about him too in a second. Oh, the, the servant, the servant. It's yeah. one of those. It's 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 kind of like that. It's um, it's you know when you invite somebody into your life and they they wind up wrecking it. Uh, you could say the cable guy is one of those. Too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, he does a little bit more of his World War II stuff here in uh, Line of Demarcation. Takes place in um, in 1941 in the Jura Mountains, which are right between uh, Vichy France and Free France, uh, right along the demarcation zone, which is why it's called Line of Demarcation. And um, gets into a lot of politics, gets into a little bit, a little bit of melodrama and French resistance uh, group and... You know, people getting uh, helped out of, you know, France and spy stuff. There's a little bit of all of that in here, but it still winds up being a very, very cool Claude Chabrol film with a lot of intrigue. Sam Dean, again, does the commentary on that one, and Kat Ellinger does the commentary on The Third Lover. And then uh, right at the end of this amazing blitz of Kino titles are two by Joseph Losey, which have been out before on DVD, but never on Blu-ray. And God bless you, Kino, for giving us Accident and The Criminal, two of the all-time great Joseph Losey films. They are absolutely terrific. Um, the uh, Dirk Bogard probably turns in his best or second best performance. We were talking about the the servant. Yeah. Um, this is this is right up there. Uh, once again, working with Joseph Losey and uh, doing amazing work in here. Uh, fantastic. This is you know written by Harold Pinter as well. So Joseph Losey and Harold Pinter. And Dirk Bogard, you really, really can't go wrong. It's just an absolutely sensational film. Um, the whole tragedy of uh, you know an Oxford professor who's who, stu- uh, who loses a student in a car crash, and then has to sort of reflect on on events leading up to it. It's really, yeah. really devastating. Um, very, very timely film too in a lot of ways. Uh, the criminal is uh, is probably one of the. L- it's one of the more famous Joseph Losey films that nobody has ever seen. Uh, I, I keep meeting people like, oh, I keep meaning to see that. I keep wanting to see that. And nobody ever sees it. Cat Ellinger does a great commentary on here as well. Um, really, really interesting. Uh, there's a, it has a Stanley, Stanley Baker, who is a very underrated actor and kind of disappears at a certain point, um, plays this, uh, this criminal mastermind who um, is... Um, it, it, trying to organize a heist, I guess you could say this is maybe a little bit more in line with the killing, the Kubrick film, the killing, um, because it's 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 a, it's a similar sort of a scenario, a, he, a heist centered around a racetrack, but then there's a twist that you do not see coming, and you will never see coming, even even though I've told you about it, which sends everything completely sideways, and it just it becomes one of the most interesting crime films you could possibly imagine. It's it's much more about character than about plot at that point. Uh, some great supporting performances in here from Patrick McGee, Sam Wanamaker, um, a lot of other really really great people in here. And uh, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, definitely worth checking out. Sam Wanamaker, by the way, we should point out. Same Sam Wanamaker went yeah. on to become a TV director yeah. and is depicted by Nicholas Hammond in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time, who looks exactly, who looks like, exactly that, like that, that hair. hair. It's hysterical. <laughs> That's Fantastic. Uh, I love it. Do a little, uh, let me do a little old TV role. Yeah, quick. hit some old TV. Uh, particularly old, uh, Gunsmoke, uh, season 18 and 19. Gunsmoke uh, was on for 20 seasons. 
Uh, so there's a 20th season that's still uh, lingering around out there, 1955, 1975. Uh, but this is seasons 18 and 19 of Gunsmoke. I, um, uh, you know, as a young person, uh, yeah, 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 I, I suppose, yeah, as a child, out, out in 1975, I was in 14. I, I think that I've, I watched most of these seasons uh, live as they aired on yeah. Sunday nights in the, in the middle in the I Midwest did too. Uh, I with did too. my mother, yeah. um, uh, who absolutely loved some Gunsmoke, man. Uh, Matt Dillon, James Arness is Matt yep. Dillon, of course. Amanda Blake as Kitty. Uh, good stuff on both of these special features, uh, including audio commentaries uh, with James Arness uh, from nineteen from from two thousand five on the season eighteen disc and uh, other commentaries on the season nineteen disc. So, uh, what the hell? If you're if you're a Gunsmoke completist, you yep. get these two. You wait a little while, and uh, season twenty will be out, and you and your your collection will actually be complete. Uh, Swamp Thing, the contemporary Swamp Thing, 2019, as opposed to that 19 uh, middle 80s series. That was uh, that was uh, you know so sort of one of the early uh, first run syndication series in the early in the early 80s when when the, uh, they first started doing that kind of stuff. Swamp Thing was one of those kind of cheap and cheesy. This one is less cheap, less cheesy. Good actors, Virginia Matchin shows up in this. Um, uh, same creators. Uh, this is the complete series, which is, you know, one season um, of Swamp Thing. Uh, the costuming here is just really, really fantastic. But, you know, Swamp Thing is Swamp Thing. Not, never a superhero that I was particularly all that much into Swamp Thing. No, uh, there's a digital code, but no special features on that. I got you, babe, a five-DVD set with never-before-seen episodes of Sonny and Cher, uh, the best of Sonny and Cher. This is just I, fantastic. I love that show. I, oh, dude. I'm so glad that's out. It's, what, it's so needed to come out, yeah. Oh, did they, first of all, this is a period, an era, when the uh, the, the variety show, this, the Carol Burnett show, uh, yeah. for a little run there, you had the Bill Cosby show. Of course, you had the Flip Wilson show. Uh, these uh, who was the guy that had the puppet that he would do with the uh, oh. Jim Jim Stratford or yeah Stratton yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I think Glenn Campbell even had one for a while the yeah. uh, the Glenn Campbell show yep. so the variety show was a thing for that period I don't know middle sixties interestingly enough they probably lingered around I'd have to look up Carol Burnett to see how long Carol went but certainly lingered around to the late seventies if not for the sure. early eighties for sure. Uh, and the Sonny and Share uh, show was among the, the, the best of them. Uh, love me some Sonny Bono back in the day. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I loved Cher, all those variety shows. They were I loved all, them all. Every one of them was great. And Share, I think I matured watching Cher in those Bob Mackie costumes. Yeah. Uh, that every she week. Wore. Uh, every week. It just yeah. being so fine, it was insane. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, fantastic. I, I, the the thing I will say about all these shows, and this one, you know, this is Tom Jones, the Judy Garland show, yeah, uh, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, Sunny yeah. and Cher, um, all of those shows from that period, they had to go live every week, and they had to be rehearsed to the hilt. Mm -hmm. They have production numbers in those shows that are thrown together. With those those big heavy old cameras that yeah. have to some move and hit their Floating marks. Floating around on dollies. Floating around. I mean, it's when you when you understand the logistics involved in putting those shows together back then, they don't do that today. No. For sports they do. Yeah. 
but not for not on this level. These, no, no. These, I mean, this is really intense. Stuff. Hell, the three it's and four camera, the, the three and four camera sitcom is almost gone. Yeah, uh, you know, on yeah. in, 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 in front of a sort of quasi live audience. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. Archie Bunker and all that kind of stuff. That's pretty much almost. Be sad gone. if that directing because that's a very special directing skill. Yeah, yeah. To be able to direct those shows. Those, it's, it's a thing. Uh, Desi came out. Anyway, this was a, this was a hell of a thing. All kinds of great people show up on this. Dick Clark, Jerry Lewis, Jim Neighbors, mm-hmm. Joe Namath, Joe Willie, uh, uh, the Righteous Brothers, Dinah Shore <laughs> sings for you. Of course, uh, Sonny, uh, Sonny and, 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 uh, and Cher sing for you. Brand new interviews, never before seen episodes. I cannot recommend this highly enough. Uh, I got you, babe, the best of Sonny and Cher. All righty. That's for the oldies. Fantastic. Uh, a little... Um, Let's do a little uh, reality TV. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, the, the Survivor, uh, Edge of Extinction. This is one of those sort of like um, uh, amalgamations of all kinds of different Survivor uh, moments and seasons of, of, of various different things. This is called Edge of Extinction. I, I watched the first season of Survivor, um, which was 20 years ago this year. They've, there are 40 seasons, but that's 20 years because there are two, two seasons in a year. So, so 20 years, years ago this year, the first season of Survivor, two, the year 2000, I watched that and never watched another one after. Uh, so I, I, I imagine if you are a Survivor um, a completist, uh, you're probably going to want to pick this up and, and, and enjoy it. All kinds of stuff on this deluxe set, including getting to know the castaways and exit interviews. I, you know, I can't tell you who these people I'm looking at them trying to figure out from what seasons or whatnot these people are from. I don't know. Uh, but I suppose if you're into Survivor, you'll figure it out. A lot of deleted scenes on that, too. Basketball Wives L.A. The only thing I've seen less of than Survivor are Basketball Wives. Uh, I've literally never seen a single episode of Basketball Wives. I can tell you what's on the cover of this of this DVD. Yep. A lot of blazing hot black chicks <laughs> in really tight little tiny dresses with extreme Expensive boob jobs. <laughs> Basketball wives, L.A. I guess that's what that is, right there. Okay, yeah. I, I, I can't. I, do, I, I don't know less about anything. <laughs> I, there's nothing that I know less about. Brain surgery. Yeah, we can talk a few minutes. Yeah. Basketball wives, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. It's okay. It's all right. Basketball wives, L.A. It's all right. That's insane. Did you? Did you? You look. Love me some Jordan. Yeah. Peel. Peel. Yeah. Jordan Peel. Us. Uh, uh, yeah, so so the Twilight Zone reboot, season I, one. I, I have no. I have here, here's let, let me let me preface okay, this and then you can and then you can chime in on this. I think there is uh I get it. Twilight Zone is one of the great brands. Mm. It's just it's two words that are magic together. Yeah. Twilight Zone, Star Trek, yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. There are just certain they're they're all magic and they conjure something up. But Twilight Zone is a brand that they have been trying for decades mm-hmm. to keep going yeah. and resurrect. It belongs to Rod Serling, yeah. who was a writer, a very particular kind of writer with very particular sensibilities. And it is his realm. I get what they're trying to do today. But Jordan Peele is an auteur. Yeah. He's a writer-director with, I get it, sensibilities that they think kind of that, that he has a Serling-like mm. command of material. And I agree. I think Serling was a genre writer who legitimized stuff that we would otherwise dismiss as just pulp and horror and, you know, crap. He, like, gave a really professional, thoughtful veneer to these things, to science fiction, to horror, to fantasy. Mm. He, he made it thoughtful and interesting. And, I, and Jordan Peele does the same thing. He's taken horror into a new place. Yeah. He's made two horror films that are 
thoughtful and they have social commentary and they have really deep things to say. But he's not Rod Serling. Yeah. He's Jordan Peele. Yeah. And yeah, so, so he, they, they should have created a series. Thank you. Let him yeah. have his anthology series. Yeah. Don't call it Twilight Zone. Call it Jordan Peele's yeah. whatever. Thank you. Yeah. That's what it should have been. Yeah. When you try to stick the two together, it's a round peg and a square hole. Yeah. And it's it's just not working. Yeah, it's really, really nothing else to say. And it works least of all when they're doing remakes of episodes. Yes. And uh, that, it that works even worse don't then. Do that. Don't works do even that. worse then. Um, and and it, this is it. I Look, I get it. He's a fan. Of course he is. Of course you are. And yeah. he, he's built by some of that stuff. But that doesn't mean you should be doing that no. stuff, particularly when you're very, very good at doing your own stuff, as you just said. It, 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 I want, I want to see. I don't want to see a new Twilight Zone. I want to see whatever the anthology show is yeah. that springboards from Jordan Peele's sensibility. Yeah. and by the That's way, the one, the one, in the, the one in the middle, the one in the middle eighties didn't work any better. There it was, was terrible. It was, it was terrible. It, it was didn't horrible. Work any better. And there was another one in there too that we've forgotten. Yeah, there, there was another one from the nineties or the early two thousands that lasted like a season that and a season half. half. Yeah, so so terrible. anyway, yeah, not not did not work for me at no. all uh one of the cbs all access yeah. uh, uh okay. shows over there two hours worth of special features also includes a black and white version of every episode yep why i don't know I me either <laughs> i have no idea okay and lots of other special features too but i don't know yeah. hey you, uh, the, you know that cbs uh, the, the cbs all access they're doing something where they're they're bringing in um uh, a whole uh, set of other content and they're going to change their name, uh, and and it's going to be all like the the Paramount content or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard about that? Yeah. Is that? I mean, what what's what? Do I don't know. That? I don't know. It's a thing. You it's, know, I, these things they're starting to drive me crazy. Yeah, it's all it's all hectic. Let me hit some 4K. Okay. Uh, the first 4K we got here is uh, Midway, which was a Roland Emmerich attempt uh. to just be big and bloated and mad and crazy and CGI laden and to make some more money. With a like massive, he's been doing his whole life, massive his whole cast. It's it's just Roland Emmerich being as Roland Emmerich as he can be, with you know Patrick Wilson, Woody Harrelson, Dennis Quaid, Nick Jonas, Aaron Eckhart, Luke Evans, Ed Skrein, and Mandy Moore yeah. <laughs> holding down the, uh, the girl, the, the girl, the, and then the, the girl. girl part, and the girl part, Mandy Moore. Yeah, it's got an audio commentary and gobs of featurettes and, you know, how the Jap breaking the Japanese code and interviews with survivors to legitimize it a little bit and the special effects and why Roland Emmerich wanted to do this and none of it matters. All that matters to me is I have <laughs> swag that they sent me, which, Tim? Oh, sweet. They're, bom- they're 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 the cheapest cheesiest looking bomber sunglasses. Yeah, aviator ever. aviator bomber aviator bomber sunglasses. Bomber sunglasses. Yeah. Uh, the, mm. they are with UV protection. And here's the here's the worst part of it. Perhaps ready for not this? the top of the line. They, we got we got this little. They they actually have midway the title of the movie <laughs> the movie's logo is is imprinted on one of the lenses. Yes, it's etched in there. It's. It, you can't use these. No, they are <laughs> unusable sunglasses. Because you got to look at that. What? What? What are they thinking? Like, hey, I'm gonna walk around in public oh, wearing my my midway sunglasses. Hey, I'm look cool. See, I got a logo on my sunglasses. It says Midway. It's oh, a bad movie. Well. hey, look, man, I'm still trying I, to figure I, out what to do with that Pablo Amador pet uh, <laughs> pin. Yeah, <laughs> I just this the stuff that we get oh sometimes. It's so bizarre. Oh anyway, Midway. Don't worry about it. 
Um, I, you know, Ford versus Ferrari, Oscar nominated, won a couple of awards. Pretty great. I love this movie. It won editing and it won one of the sound awards. And uh, boy, did it deserve both of them. It is just is sound editing and, and picture editing. This is absolutely an amazing, amazing movie. I love it. I know a lot of people don't. I was arguing with another friend this morning who thinks it, it's crap and historically inaccurate. I don't care. Yeah, yeah okay, the 24-hour war, the, the, the documentary it's based on. Is, is a better movie. So what? This is fun. I had great fun with Matt Damon and Christian Bale acting in a really, really just completely classic old-school 80s-era movie directed by James Mangold, who just brought the, the mid-level studio sheen to this thing. And you know what? It's a really great movie, and I love it. So I, I can't recommend this highly enough. It looks amazing in 4K. Two Academy Awards, well-deserved. Um, wonderful cast. Christian Bale finally, you know, using his, his, his actual accent. John Bernthal is in this. He's great. Catriona Balfe, this Welsh actress who plays Christian Bale's wife in this thing, should have had an Oscar nomination. She was phenomenal. Tracy Letts, who's been all over the place for the longest time, is phenomenal in a supporting performance as uh, Henry Ford II. I, I just enjoy this movie. And uh, I actually know the DP, one of several DPs this week that I know, uh, Faden Papa Michael. Don't know him really well, but we have common friends. And Faden, uh, he just shot the hell out of this thing as well. Did mm. a great job. So that, that versus Rush, and just to make it interesting, uh, I think Rush is the better film. Uh, but boy, I love them both. Uh, uh, I the, love the them. Better both. film? I think Rush it's is. Rush is the more serious film. It's a more uh, serious uh, film for uh, sure. Uh, but that's more entertaining. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so a lot know, more entertaining. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Knives Out, Oscar nominated for screenplay, and Jojo Rabbit, winner of screenplay. Now, mm. Knives Out was nominated for original, Jojo Rabbit won adapted, but mm. I'm going to talk about both of these in the same breath. Um, both of them on 4K this week. One, jo- of, them, one of them quite controversial. Uh, yes. Now, Knives Out, it's, you know, it's a, it's a throwback whodunit. It, yeah. It's not, kinda, not, not the controversial one. Not the controversial one. I don't really think it works. I think it kind of cheats at a certain point, and it doesn't really stick the landing. But this thing has made a ton of money, and it's got a sequel in the works. And uh, what the hell do I know? Uh, it's the kind of film that Ryan Johnson started his career with mm-hmm. and before he got Br- de- uh, Brick. Brick? Brick. Brick, yeah. Which we reviewed a few weeks ago. Before he detoured into uh, Star Wars. And, and genre stuff. And this is kind of where he's most comfortable. I, I There's a lot to love about this film. It's a fun cast. Daniel Craig is terrific as the detective. Jamie Lee Curtis is the, the matriarch of this, you know, uh, this psychotic family that uh, whose patriarch just died, played by Christopher Plummer. Uh, Michael Shannon and, you know, uh, Keith Stanfield is really good. Tony Collette is good. Don Johnson legitimizes himself again. Chris Evans. Uh, Anna de Armas really as the as the central figure in this whole thing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of fun going on here, but again, I don't think it sticks to the landing. Tons of extras. It looks really good on 4K. Uh, the Ryan Johnson commentary is quite a lot of fun. Deleted scenes, uh, interviews, and whatnot. I mean, if you love it, you love it. Knives out. There it is. Jojo Rabbit. I love this movie. Not everyone does. Uh, Jojo Rabbit. Uh, effectively a based on a novel story of a, a young boy in Germany during World War II under Hitler who fantasizes Hitler as his imaginary friend trying to be a good little Nazi boy and of course uh, that treatment of Hitler as this kind of farcical imaginary friend really rubbed a lot of people wrong however if you look at interviews 
about the film by Taika Waititi, mm. the writer-director mm. uh, who won an Oscar. Taika is really an interesting figure. Taika is half Maori mm-hmm. and half Jewish. So he has this really interesting kind of biracial, bicultural um, upbringing. Mm. And he's talked a lot about that and how that informed this film. And I don't think anyone else could have made this film. Taika had to fight like mad for years to do this. Had to make a very successful Thor movie in order to have the, the, the cachet to be able to do something like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like, I, I feel like a proud papa, I'm going to say that, because Taika, in 2004, started his career with a short film, a black-and-white short film called Two Cars, One Night, mm. which wound up being nominated for an Oscar. But before it was nominated for an Oscar... It won the Short Film Award at the AFI Fest. And the reason it won the Short Film Award at the AFI, AFI Fest was mm. because I was on that damn jury. <laughs> and I was on that damn jury with, uh, with Ray McKinnon and um, Shorey Agdashlu, and all three of us loved the ah. movie. We loved it. And um, it's amazing. It's basically a black and white anamorphic widescreen short uh, where a bunch of people are in like an, uh, a New Zealand honky-tonk, and there are these two kids in adjacent cars who have this connection, this little girl and this little boy, while their parents are inside, you know, dancing and playing pool and doing whatever. It's a, in the parking lot. There's yeah. two cars in a parking lot. Yeah. It's a beautiful short film. It's really beautiful. And Taika, yeah. that's the beginning of Taika. So I, I want to take a little bit of credit. Uh, probably can't because his career would have been great anyway. But yeah, beautiful. Scarlett Johansson as as the the mother. Uh, Roman Griffin Davis as the little boy. Thomason McKenzie as, as a Jewish girl who, who who's being hidden in their apartment. Uh, and Taika Waititi plays Hitler himself because nobody else would do it. Um, <laughs> I really think, despite the the tone, which is a problem for some people, it's a great film. And if you listen to the audio commentary, uh, uh, you will fully understand what he was going for. I would also say, too, that the <clears throat> this film... You know, I grew up, my mother was a, a war refugee, and my mother grew up telling me this, what it was like to be, you know, she was about the, this boy's age at the time, what it was like in Germany at the time. It was not all a horror show. It was absurdism and horror and alternating doses, and that everything related to the Hitler Youth was this bizarre, farcical uh, insanity. And this movie captures that. What my mother relayed to me this movie captures. Mm. So uh, despite the fact that it may strike people as, as uh, needlessly comedic, I think it's important to understand that this represents something that was, in fact, true to that moment in time. And what a great film. Sam Rockwell should have had an Oscar nomination. I know that uh, Scarlett Johansson got one, but, yeah. man, Sam Rockwell was so good in this, so good in this. Could have gotten it for this or the, or the Eastwood film. Didn't get it for either of them. Um, it, it, uh, the producers uh, came out when? 1968. Uh, okay, so 1968. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah 50. Year of 50, 2001. 50-some-odd 50, 50 years ago. Yeah. So post-producers. Post-producers. Yeah. Is there, it, what's the problem with, the, with these? I mean, you know, they'll cause, you know, I mean, you know, the thing, yeah. some springtime. I, yeah. I, I thought I would have thought that would have taken the air out of yeah. that. You'd have think. You'd have uh, thought. Yeah, yeah, All yeah, right, let's finish yeah, the TV. Yeah, finish, up, finish up the TV. Finish up the TV. Okay, got a big old uh, steel box set here. Uh, first time in Steelbook. <clears throat> the 15th anniversary, 15th year anniversary of Avatar, The Last Airbender, uh, the complete series from Nickelodeon. 
Uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, if you're into this, uh, the Steelbook Collection featuring all new art in each one of the books. Uh, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the series, works its way forward, full of all kinds of special features as well. Uh, the, the, the making of uh, featurettes for, uh, across the arc of this series is just fantastic. Uh, audio commentaries and much, much more. Um, look, uh, as um, 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 the last Avatar, the last Airbender goes, the last yeah. Avatar, this is the series. You know, that movie was problematic. Yeah. Uh, for for never uh, should have been taken away from the animated world. Oh, for God's sake! You know, then don't make a little white kid. For yeah. God's sake, that's, 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 that's <laughs> perfectly insane, right there. The unbreakable Kimmy Smith, all fifty-one episodes. There were fifty-one episodes of that damn uh, the show. The complete Holy series. Uh, burnt, burnt right through them. They did. Interesting notion in this show. A young woman goes into a uh, a doomsday underground cult sort of like bunker and gets brought out. Fifteen years later, she has a fifth grade education. The world hasn't ended, and she has to rebuild her life in New York. And that's you know what? That's kind of funny. And it sort of worked, I suppose, for fifty one for fifty one episodes. Not particular, not particularly anything by way of special features on this set. I suppose I like this because it's from those producers over there at Thirty Rock, you know, Tina Fey and all those kind of guys. They know what they're doing. The old series. Um, and, and this is one of those tricky little series that sort of slipped its way in there and was on for a really long time. Uh, sort of like after the heyday of the sitcom, yeah. step by step. And this, it's just, it's just one of those series. It, it, I have it, like it, a vague recollection of that. Exactly. It's one yeah. of those things. It, it came on in 1991, ran till 1998. And it was, uh, you know, it was just one of those series that ran in like, I suppose it was first run syndication is what it was. as opposed to network series, like the ones we grew up watching all in yeah. the family and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And, but there were, there were a whole bunch of these first-run syndication sitcoms that starred folks like Suzanne Somers in in this one here, and they would come on and run for a decade. Uh, And there's a whole cadre of a certain age, adult now, but child then, a kid who was like 10 years old in 1991, Mm -hmm. who know these shows inside and out, and it's crazy. Um, So that's, uh, this is one of those shows, and uh, you know, it was kind of fun. After Suzanne Summers, uh, you know, Three's Company and all that kind of stuff, after uh, Patrick Duffy, uh, Dallas, and, and, and what you wonder where Patrick Duffy went, he was on this sitcom for 10 years. <laughs> that's where he was. <laughs> that's what, that's what oh. the hell he was doing. Uh, let's see, what do we have here? Years and Years uh, is a series uh, that's really quite good. Shades of, uh, what's, what's the one that they just finished up with Julia Lee Dreyfus? Oh, Vice. Beep, beep, beep. Uh, yeah. Shades and shades of that um, uh, is uh, is years and years. It's about this family in the in the UK, uh, more or less now going through all the sort of cultural machinations uh, that the UK is going through. Yeah. Uh, so Brexit and uh, you know, sort of odd left wing, right wing politics that don't seem to make any sense anymore. Uh, you, know, you have this. You have uh, uh, um, uh, Emma Thompson at the center of this yeah. family and all the machinations go through. It's it's a really really good series. Kind of dark. Pointedly funny and very sharply written. Uh, HBO original series, that. Awkward, season one, of this really sort of neat show about this young woman uh, in her formative years uh, uh, growing up. She has this accident. Uh, and because of this accident where something extremely tragic happens, people start to treat her in a very particular way. 
Uh, and she goes from being uh, very, very, very unpopular to being mm -hmm. very, very popular, but not for reasons that you would want to be popular. Uh -huh. And that makes it sort of interesting in and of itself. She's having a romance with one of the most popular boys in school, uh, but she doesn't want anybody to know that she's having Got a romance it. with the popular boy in school. So it's really, really neat uh, in that way. The in-between is love this series, a, l a lot of fun. Special features include uh, dating uh, advice, uh, which is just hysterical. Um, uh, anyway, it follows these friends and their antics during their final years in school. It's just it's it's a um, big chill. Yeah. Uh, right before they graduate. I got That's you. That's what this is. Finishing off the 4K stuff. So this is a thing we're starting to get now, and everybody should be aware of this: is that we're getting 4K anniversary releases of movies. So when the anniversaries come up. For certain films, they're pumping them out in 4K because that's an excuse to, to for people to double dip and upgrade. So we're going to get Gladiator and Braveheart on no. the horizon. No. <clears throat> but for now, we've got a couple here. Uh, these Steelbooks, anniversary 4K Steelbooks of Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, 10th anniversary with really? Leonardo DiCaprio. Can you believe it's been 10 oh, years since yeah. Shutter Island? I hate this movie. I, uh, I always hated it, too. <laughs> it's a terrible film. It's Scorsese trying to be all, like, weird. And trying to be, trying to be Christopher Nolan. Trying to be Christopher Nolan, for yeah. sure, yeah. Uh, a little bit of Hitchcock, a lot of Christopher Nolan. And, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually it's almost trying to be a little bit of... Um, Jacob's Ladder slash mm, Adrian Lyme, yeah. Uh, yeah, slash uh, the the uh, the Sixth Sense. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. a little bit of that too. A little too Twilight Zoney in 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 its aspirations. Not his Bailiwick Martin. You know, no, not, not, not at all. Yeah. Uh, it, basically, uh, it, it's it's a, an investigation into uh, a an, an island and an asylum, and Leonardo DiCaprio leads the investigation. Yada yada yada. Um, and, you know, it's got a twisty ending that makes absolutely no sense at all. But whatever. It, you know, it's it's out there. It's on Steelbook, and it's on 4K. I don't like it. I can't recommend it, but I'm sure somebody will get a thrill out of it. It was a popular movie. 30th anniversary Steelbook, Hunt for Red October. Get out of here. 30. You, you know what? Of course it is. You know, one of the first junkets oh, I did when we gosh. arrived was was the junket for Hunt for Red October. I know. My God, so that depressing. was that was nineteen nine oh my God. Well the they have a John McTiernan commentary on here. It is a pre prison John, John McTiernan, McTiernan commentary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's not John McTiernan since his, his life was uh, su substantially altered by going to prison in that whole fiasco that we won't get into. I'd hire him. Uh, I would, too, in a heartbeat. Uh, he's paid, can, his, he's paid can, his price. He's can, still a good director. Can direct his ass off. Die yeah. hard. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he brings it for this one. I think the, uh, the based on the Tom Clancy novel, uh, it is – and this is one of the um, – uh, this is one of the very. It might even be the first Jack Ryan film. Was this the first Jack Ryan film? Film, yes, I absolutely. think it was. Yeah. I think this was the first Jack Ryan film. Yes, yeah, the first adaptation. So, A bunch of people played Jack, but, but Alec Baldwin plays Jack Ryan in this one. Yeah. And of course, it's with you know Sean Connery as the as the defecting Soviet submarine captain. Really interesting uh, directorial choice to move to migrate it from Russian into English, which is this little zoom in camera thing that he does early on. But it's very very cool. Scott Glenn's in here as well. Uh, I, I still think this is a really really good film. I think it's a it's maybe one of McTiernan's best films, and uh, I thoroughly enjoy it. It's got some great. Um, oh, this is the film that gave us Courtney Courtney B Vance. That's right. Uh, playing that playing that sonar uh, right. uh, operator. Right. I mean, Courtney B Courtney B Vance first came on my radar in uh, Hamburger Hill. True enough. 
That's true when enough. I first with, caught with all those guys, yeah. Dylan and McDermott, yeah. and all. But all it's guys. true. Yeah. He really this is this is what sort of pushed him, pushed him into uh, into kind of leading man, uh, the the realm where he would be thereafter and where he's been since. So anyway, Larry Ferguson and Donald Stewart did a did a great screenplay for this as well. Hunt for October 30th anniversary Steelbook 4K. The last two 4Ks. Um, okay. I'm going to start off here with Color Out of Space with mm. Nicolas Cage, mm. based on the mm. H.P. Lovecraft story. I don't know. How does he keep finding these? I don't know. Candy was the one before this so, one. So, the, 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 Nicolas Cage, pretty much. If Okay. If you have an idea, <laughs> Tim knows what I'm going to say. If you have an idea that is so unrealistically insane that you don't think it can be a movie, attach Nicolas Cage. Yes. It'll get made. This, um, this is bananas. It's just this is about a, a, a meteorite lands in this family's lawn, and uh, the alien organism on it just inf- infects the family, yes. and everything goes to hell. Yeah, that's basically what this is about. Oh, the thing that happens to uh, the red grave, the red red grave. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, the thing that happens yeah. to her in that movie. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. You, you know, come on, man. What are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. And why is these? Why is Joey, she in this Julie movie? Richardson. Uh, Julie Richardson. One yeah. of the red graves. Julie yeah. Richardson. Julie Richardson. Uh, 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 so so yeah yeah oh, goodness so so let me tell you the reason this movie is insane is this is the first movie in decades directed by Richard Stanley yeah now Richard Stanley directed Hardware and uh, Dust Devil and really had this this eighties era moment where he was the man he mm-hmm. was the new crazy man making these amazing genre movies. And then he was going to direct The Island of Dr. Moreau, and it all fell completely Ooh. apart. If you've seen the documentary, it gets no, weird. No, Marlon Brando. And Brando gets weird, and then... They, he, wouldn't, he, he, stand, he wouldn't wear pants. He wouldn't wear pants. <laughs> he put these hats and his <laughs> yeah, makeup on. And, and I don't blame him for not wearing <coughs> the pants, yeah. because he weighed 900 pounds. Anyway, and there's no reason for him to walk. Richard Stanley got fired. They replaced him with John Frankenheimer, and then you know the movie turned into crap, and yeah. it went nowhere. But it, the documentary about that film by the way is weird because Richard Stanley disappeared and then it turned out that here he is going all Marlon Brando like Apocalypse Now style up the river he's been living down the river from where they're shooting the movie stalking stalking the movie crazy stuff so just so you understand I've met Richard Stanley I used to be neighbors with Adam Simon. <laughs> Adam Simon, who's, who's a great guy, by the way. Adam Simon, a filmmaker who who did uh, uh, um, uh, what was the the, uh, the the dinosaur thing for Corman? Uh, oh yeah, it, it, with, it, with it, Diane Ladd. Yeah, yeah, I remember the one you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So Adam Simon made a lot of great docs, though. I mean, Adam Simon's made some you know some exploitation stuff. Carnosaur. Carnosaur. Made Carnosaur yeah. with Diane Ladd. Diane Ladd called up. Uh, 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 Laura Dern one day and said, "Hey, I'm doing a dinosaur movie too." <laughs> when Laura Dern was doing uh, uh, Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park. yeah, it was like really, it's not quite the same. Carnosaur, too funny. Anyway, so Adam Simon, neighbor of mine, I didn't know him, but I had a friend that I'd met in Cannes Film Festival who came to stay with me, who knew Adam Simon, and one day he says, "Hey." You know, Adam Simon's a neighbor of yours, and I know Adam. He, he wants us to just come over and hang for, you know, like tea and, and just, like, kick it. So one Sunday afternoon, I go down there with my buddy Atan, 
from the UK and to Adam Simon, who I didn't even know, lives like three blocks from me. And it's like, hey, Adam, it's good to meet you. You know, you went to school with my friend Ray Green. Oh, yeah, Ray Green. Like, we know all the same yeah. people, right? Yeah. Ray went to, you know, our USC, fellow yeah, city yeah. guy, yeah. went to USC with Adam Simon. So we know a lot. It's just everybody in Hollywood knows everybody else. And if you don't, you know somebody in common. It's weird. Mm. So we're hanging out there. And then Adam says, he picks up the phone. Yeah, come on over. We're just hanging out. Hangs up the phone. Richard Stanley's coming over. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Like, Richard, like, hardware Richard Stanley? Seriously? Richard Stanley? About 20 minutes later, Richard Stanley walks in, big old freaking book under his arm. And Richard Stanley, with the, you know, he's like wearing a hat, Ooh, the long the black hair, hair yeah. the whole thing. I mean, this is about 1993, mm. I think, 93, 94. And he comes in and he, and he says, you're, you're not going to believe this most amazing book. And he drops the book down like something just got dug out of a basement. <laughs> it's like this amazing chapter on necromancy. I'm like, Necro- you're like, Necro- really? <laughs> like, and, and he and Adam Simon just start going off on like all the weird occult. It's got, you know, like pentagrams and <gasps> stuff in it. It's all this fantastic stuff. And, you know, this is Richard Stanley. He's into this stuff. Yeah. And he was preparing Dr. Moreau at the time. Oh. Right? He hadn't been fired yet. And he told us, he was talking to us. He's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be, I'm going to do this and that. And it sounded amazing. And it never happened. But, Richard Stanley, he's been living in France for 20 years, yeah. and he's back in the saddle, but this movie is nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, you go, you go get Nicolas Cage, and man, that... Uh. This is an insane yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah man. I'm not yeah. going to say it's good or bad, but it's crazy. Yeah. And there's my Richard Stanley yeah, I had story. To, I, had, I had to talk about it on the radio, so, you know... I had to... Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here in just a moment, but I'm gonna wrap out with, uh, with some animated stuff. And the last 4K is Frozen 2. Now... Um, I didn't think Frozen needed a sequel. It did not, but particularly but, not a, a a horrible sequel that abandons all of the themes you. of the original film. But it made a bajillion dollars, yeah. and so they're like, and they had two sequel, two shorts that went did really well, and so here we go, we get another. Okay, um, I hate Frozen Two with a passion that is impossible to explain. <laughs> this movie made me so angry watching it. I wanted to kill people. I wanted to go on a rampage and do what would only be done in a Richard Stanley movie. <laughs> uh, but I didn't because I saw it with my family mm. and my daughter who loves Frozen mm. and who has, oh, I don't know, 18 or 19 figurines uh, from Frozen uh, in all different forms. Uh it love truly loves it, and we saw it with her and her little friend Emma, and uh, they they love Frozen and all things related to uh, Elsa and Anna. And uh, on top of that, you know, we we've seen Frozen um, as a stage show at mm-hmm, the Pantages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's also a Frozen stage show at the uh, Disney California Adventure, Indeed. which we have seen probably eight hundred times. <laughs> and and um, the soundtrack for Frozen Two. I, I have had to listen to in the car driving my daughter to school um eight or nine hundred times. Yeah. So I I I've been tortured to death with this mm. frozen stuff for a long time. I hate frozen too, but you know what? My daughter's gonna be watching this until the end of time, so I better learn to suck it up. Yeah. Because there it is. I don't know. Um, I think I think I think when she's around fourteen or sixteen, something's gonna kick in and yeah. she's gonna be like, What the hell was I thinking? Uh, when she's old enough, I'll explain to her why yeah. everything that they taught you in Frozen 
is undone in yeah. the trade. But yeah. it truly, it's like it's like Frozen was all about you know learn to 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 learn to love people who are different, mm-hmm. learn to to be who you are. Mm-hmm. And Frozen Two is all about. You know what? If you're different, no one's ever gonna love you. Uh, yep. And just just separate yourself from society and go find your own tribe. Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna hate. It's like and maybe wait, that boy might help. One movie was about inclusion, and the other movie is not. And yet somehow they try to get around that by the fact that now in this they've introduced tons of black characters. Yeah. Yeah. Like there there are brown there are more brown people than there are Nordic people in, in this in, movie. In that movie, yeah. It, it and that wasn't the case in the yeah. first Frozen. No. Yeah. And so they've clearly done that to sort of soften what is not really about yeah. it's about hating it's, it's other not, people it's not what the actual story is it's about. not what the story is yeah. it's weird but anyway uh, the last two we're going to make mention of here mm-hmm. uh, are two G-Kids animated films not on 4K but they're both out from Shout and they're both really really terrific and they, they deserve your attention G-Kids is just bringing it with so much amazing global animation fascinating stuff um, this is a uh, the first one is, that I want to make mention of is called White Snake, uh, which is in this amazing mm. um, Chinese animated film. It's it's CG animation. It is beautiful. It's spectacular, uh, and it's 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 from an animation house I've never heard of before. Uh, Light Chaser Animation, absolutely amazing. Um, it's you know it's kind of classic martial arts wuxia stuff about. Uh, uh, a woman who's rescued by a, a, a snake catcher in medieval China, and they go on this mythical journey. But it is it is absolutely amazing. It is just beautiful. It's the, the story's been kind of sort of done in some live action films, but it's an absolutely beautiful film. It's incredible animation. And then, equally impressive, uh, is Another Day of Life, which has won all kinds of uh, awards and festivals around the world. It's this, uh, truly an amazing film. Um, it uh, it's based on a novel by Rizgard Ricardo Kapuczynski, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, but anyway, this is about the, the uh, basically takes place during the civil war in Angola when it declared uh, independence from Portugal in 1975. I know you're thinking, really, the Angolan civil war is a is a subject for an animated mm. film. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. It's beautiful. It's it's a two D animation, and it's just it's not for kids. This is a, this is adult animation, but yeah. it's really powerful stuff. Beautiful, and uh, I highly highly recommend another day of life, based on the book by Rizgard Kapuczynski, um, directed by Raúl de la Fuente and Damien Nanao. By the way, so there it is. Wow. That's our show this week, folks. Uh, We'll be back uh, next week with more fun stuff, and hopefully I keep my voice and I can get rid of this cough sooner. I only have one one coughing attack. One more, one coughing attack. Let's hope it goes away. We'll see you next week.